Good morning. Let us pray. This is from the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Um, what thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor and grant to me thy grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. A bit premature looking at Lenten hymns uh, before Lent, but we are talking about the crucifixion quite directly today, so I thought it was appropriate to start with a, a little prayer for the, from a, a nice Lenten hymn reflecting on the Lord's cross. A couple of announcements real quick. So Church Family Sunday is, is a week from today. So next Sunday, one service, 9.30, followed by fellowship. Followed by fellowship and Bible study. Um, so just make, make a note of that, please, 931 service. Then uh, after so Transfiguration kind of wraps up the Epiphany season, it will begin uh, Lent with Ash Wednesday. So next, not this coming Wednesday, the following Wednesday, we'll have morning worship at 11 and evening at 7 with ash, uh, ashes at both and also soup supper at 6 o'clock. So all of our Lenten services will begin with uh, soup at 6 o'clock. And just a couple of small reminders, too, with... Um, if you get an email from me saying, hey, uh, do you have a second to chat? Don't respond to that email uh, because it's gonna eventually lead to someone pretending to be me asking you for money. Now, if it's actually me asking you for money, I will at least have the decency to call you. <laughs> but so this is going, it keeps coming around. It circles back and we've had, we've had members who, who kind of get sucked into this thing because it can be quite convincing. It even comes into your email, it says, Pastor Klimmer, and the, and the emails are modified to look something believable. It would be like, pastor.klimmer.bethany at gmail.com. And you're like, oh, it seems like a legit email. And then they start a conversation. And next thing you know, they're asking you for, it's like gift cards. Why would Pastor Klimmer want Apple iTunes gift cards from you? Just too many, hopefully by now everybody's kind of suspicious of these things, but it's still going around. So um, just be, be um, cautious on those things. The Owls Group, Older, Wiser, Luther, Lutheran Seniors, is going to the Bavarian Lodge this Thursday at 4 o'clock. You can sign up at the Welcome Center or call Jan Melius. And last, and also kind of kicking off our Bible study, we had our Lay Theology Conference yesterday here. Uh, we've, this is our sixth one. We had over 200 people here, which is a tremendous record so far in, in our Lay Theology Conference. Uh, if you weren't able to come to that or interested in, in reviewing it or seeing it, it's, uh, you can access it through our church's website. Uh, you can get into the YouTube page on our, all the, where all of our live stream stuff is archived and, and watch it. All the slides that he used for his presentation are also there. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be on that YouTube presentation. So just in general, the idea was becoming screen-wise and uh, overviewed how the, uh, both the statistical data on how screens are proving to impact the lives of our, our youth, especially. Like we've had enough, so cell phones were, were more ubiquitous around like 2010 to 12. So we start, we have, we start having hard data now, like over a decade later. And when you, when you go back and look at like cases of like anxiety and suicide and, and all these problems, they just, they just, quadruple 
around 2010 to 12, when cell phones and social media accessibility became so prevalent. And so it's just kind of like reminding us all of uh, the dangers and the risks associated with our, with our phones being so accessible. And then a lot of the drawbacks, especially as Christians, as we kind of get sucked into um, making the phone our, our God and, and letting it control us in various ways. And then having some, having some ways to approach that, um, setting up for yourself more boundaries and creating better habits. So it's, it, unlike, I'd say, unlike most of the theology conferences that preceded it, this was much more like practical. That is, we'd, we'd say in a good way, by, by way of the law. That is, the law is there for our good. Um, we, don't, we don't keep it successfully, but it is like, it is helpful to, you know, not, not kill your neighbor, not steal their stuff. Like the law is there to protect us from ourselves. And so too, uh, the, the phone, we want to be mindful of some of its risks and, and just cautious and are using, especially when raising, um, raising children. So you can check that out on the website. So today, uh, Luke, anything? oh, I wanted to mention thanks to Stephanie Ryan and the PTL and Beth Hahn and, and all their volunteers who went into putting this thing together yesterday. It took a lot of, a lot of preparation, a lot of work, uh, uh, child care. I know we had a lot, of the, a lot of the ladies of the congregation help uh, take care of the kids so we could offer free child care. And um, so people can just drop off their preschoolers down the, down the school wing and come to the conference and pay attention. So uh, it was great. We had a lot of, remember, as I mentioned to you, we're trying to find ways to, to crack into the preschool and school parents that are otherwise disconnected from churches and try to invite them into conversation and, and emphasize the, their important role in, in parenting their children. And I think we could say we succeeded in that. Um, just bringing them along. I mean, some might say we bait and switched them because we were giving them like free homework passes and free lunch and free chocolate. And yes, we did. That's okay. They came. Uh, it was good. And I, th- and, and I heard back from many of them how thankful they were. And many of you as well. How, what, what a helpful conference it was. So please do check that out. That's a cool resource for us. as uh, Not just parents, but anybody with a phone. Um, all right. So today, Luke 23, if you would, you can open your Bible. They're available in the back. And um, hopefully we make a little bit of progress in Luke 23 today. So we started talking about the crucifixion last week, approximately um, around verse 23. And we, we keep making like one verse at a week progress, but that's okay. We have to be sure to still be talking about the crucifixion until Lent is over. So we've got to drag it out for a while. Verse 26 Uh, They led him away. They seized Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Those women are going to keep coming up, by the way, so make a little note, those women. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? That's where we left off last time. So now we're going to get into the crucifixion proper. Two others who were criminals, the word there Greek is literally do-batters, criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. So as Isaiah prophesied, he would be numbered with the transgressors. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. 
So first, the, the place of the skull, uh, Golgotha. Why do you think it was called the place of the skull? You think so? Yeah, 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 that was always kind of my thought. It was either, maybe it looked like a skull, like something from old He-Man cartoons or something. It's um, a very dated reference, but um, did, did it look like a skull? But it, it, there could not have been skulls lying around because it was, it was against the, the, the law, the, the Jewish law. So it's more likely either just the association with death. I mean, we think we associate skulls, skull and crossbones, skull with death. So perhaps it, got, it drew its name from that. Uh, otherwise, perhaps the geography, there's something about the rocky terrain look like a skull in some way. Yeah, Harvey. That's what I was going to say, because I was there, and there's a portion of the thing that's more like the edge of a cliff, and it has like two eyes on Mount Kinda. So it's basically Mount Rushmore, but more Halloween-y. <laughs> Obviously, oh, interesting. Yeah, cool, very good. Now, is that, when you were there, did they indicate, it was that like, this has been here forever, or is it like, hey, somewhere around like the 1500s, like, well, you know, it'd be cool if we chiseled some, a big skull face on the side of this rock. It was it considered to be legit, like this is how it's always looked? Well, many church bodies assume that that's where the name comes from, the place of the skull. Huh, it got it. Interesting. So it was, it was likely related to the geography. Maybe, Good. That's what the commentators indicated. It certainly was not because there's piles of skulls around. That, was, that, would, have been, that would have been, again, against the, the Jewish law. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit about the crucifixion itself and how a person dies. We, we, I know we, we, we kind of brush on this every year on Good Friday as our schedule allows in sermons and such, but um, it's, it's helpful to, to review that as Jesus... He, he doesn't die. If you, even when I go and ask like eighth graders in confirmation class or whatever, how, do you, how did Jesus die? The assumption is always blood loss because it's hard to even think like how else would he die? How, I mean, we associate gunshot wounds. It's usually blood loss in some way. And um, that is not how he died. And it also ties, it ties in well to some other things that are about to happen on the cross. But uh, so they would have nailed... Um, the different archaeographical evidence, archae, archaeographical, I just, actually that's a word, that's legit science, no, archaeological discoveries will show like bones where the, they'll find places where like nails have been inserted into the wrist, like underneath the wrist bone, like between the, the radius and ulna where they attach, so it could actually support the weight, because if they were just nailed through the hand, it would have slipped out, but others would say that perhaps they tied the wrist to the cross, and that's where the, the, the tension was, but then they'd still na- drive a nail through the hand itself. Um, either way, they, they didn't want the person to die too quickly. So they're gonna be sure to avoid like hitting major like arteries or whatever that would, that would cause excessive bleeding because they needed the person to suffer a prolonged time because that was the whole point, to discourage the crime by publicizing the significant pain and suffering of the individual. Um, and then also with the legs, driving the nail through the legs, uh, through the ankle bones. And um, again, that goes down to why it was, like we talked about last week, likely they, they laid the cross on the ground to be able to get the, the, the power necessary for driving a nail through, through bone. Um, but then when they stand a person up, and, and it wouldn't have to have been but a couple of inches off the ground. They don't have to be five feet in the air. It could have just been a couple inches. Um, and that's actually likely because they're, they're trying to hand him stuff to his mouth. Um, they're, they're ridiculing him. They're spitting in his face and stuff at pretty close proximity. 
Um, so the, the, the person is dying there because you have the tension, they dislocate the shoulders, extend it really far, and you're kind of sunken down, and your lungs start to kind of like restrict your ability to breathe which is ultimately what kills the, the people. So asphyxiation, like suffocation, not getting enough oxygen over a prolonged period of time. So Jesus, who has already suffered significantly through the, through the scourgings and has lost a lot of blood already, um, now he's, he's doing this exhausting way to die of crucifixion. So you have to push up. Some say there is a, perhaps a small ledge around the, the ankles or so where you could kind of try to push up um, have you ever done that, that um, exercise that sounds like an easy thing where you, so everybody goes to the wall and they squat down and lean their back against me. Wall sits, they call that. You ever do a wall sit for longer than hmm, 30 seconds and not thought, this is a terrible idea. Well, so it's like that. It's almost like a, a wall sit because you're having to push, like you're either, you're either suffocating or you're pushing off the nails that are driven through your ankle bones or that little ledge to get a breath, but you're, then immediately sunk it back down. So the, the feeling that I always associate it with is the, that, that feeling when you've, you've dived into your, in like the deep end of a swimming pool and, you, and, you're, and like you wanted to touch the bottom or something and you push it too far, you stay down for too long. Um, like Adam Francisco never felt this feeling, like a diver for the Navy. He's like, I never get the feeling of almost drowning. I can stay down in the water forever. But Everybody else who wasn't a professional diver, at a certain point, you think, I need oxygen. And you start coming up, and at that moment, like the weird kid in the giant inner tube comes right over the top of you, and you hit it, boom. And then you, then you start to panic, because you're like, I was already out of oxygen, and now I just can't get it. There's like that moment of, ah, that like strung out on the cross of needing oxygen, barely getting it, and not getting enough, and then just keep staying in that state. Um, that's important to think about because if, you're, if, your breath, if, you're, if your breath is so precious and you have to work so hard to get it, why would Jesus be wasting his breath having these long conversations from the cross? Well, he doesn't have long conversations from the cross, but he does say a few things that the church has historically held to be very important. So the seven last words of Jesus, which we reflect upon usually on Good Friday. It's been our Lenten theme in the past, but we, we've, we do focus on everything Jesus says, obviously, but especially these words because Jesus took great care in the words that he chose. And he didn't have to talk, he didn't say a, a lot of long uh, conversations. Um, even the perhaps one of the more famous, it is finished, there's only one word, to telestai. He says one word, and that makes sense. He's, 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 he gets his enough oomph to push off the nails, get a breath, <gasps> it is finished, and then it's like he's, he's constantly in that state. So when Jesus speaks, you just imagine him kind of pushing these words through strain, and it's not, it's not wasting his, his breath. Um, so then ultimately the person would die from asphyxiation, but just to make sure, um, on, the, on Good Friday, in, in the case of Jesus with the, the thieves on his side, remember they come up to him to make, they wanted the guys off the cross, so they weren't on the cross on the Sabbath, and they break their legs, because again, if you're having to, if every breath that you get is dependent upon your ability to push up and get a breath, if you don't have your legs to rely on anymore, you just suffocate immediately. And so that would have been the case with the thieves on the side, and they get to Jesus, and he's already gone. Now, some would argue, if you, if you read like Bart Ehrman, and uh, I think is, is probably an advocate of this, but a lot of the theories as to 
did Jesus die on the cross? So among the atheist community, I know we've talked about this at Theology on Tap. Uh, Adam's talked about it quite a bit. We've talked about some of the classic atheist um, approaches to dealing with the crucifixion. Because you have this problem. If you acknowledge that Jesus, you have to acknowledge that Jesus existed. From any like historical standard, it's undeniable that Jesus existed. If you can't, if you can't at least admit that Jesus existed, like you, you, have to, you, can't, you can't admit that Napoleon existed or that the Civil War happened, right? So the same, the same criterion that we would use to say that those other historical th- things happened would also indicate that G- Jesus, Jesus lived. He existed as a historical figure. Also, there's the same, the same uh, level of, of historical data indicating that he was he was crucified. That is, it's not just the Bible that tells us these things. There's evidence outside the external evidence. So uh, archeological evidence pointing to this, uh, other, other written documents and history written by those who would otherwise be antagonistic or enemies of the gospel. They're all writing about this, that the fact is Jesus, he, he existed. He was saying these crazy things about himself and that he died. Those are like historically recognized. Uh, people who deny those points are very difficult to just reason with because they're denying any history at all. They would, you could say, well, are you sure that the Civil War happened? They'd go, well, we can't be sure. We can't trust. Like, okay, well, at what point, what can you trust? So uh, now if we got Jesus existing and he's teaching stuff and he died on the cross, we still haven't gotten to anything that, like, it's that significant. It's, the big thing of the Christian faith is that he then he rose again. And that's where we get into the articles of faith. So uh, just because the Bible said that he rose from the dead doesn't mean that he did. So how can we be sure that those who are making the testimony that he rose from the dead were telling the truth? And that's where we get into another level of, ap- of apologetics. So some of the ways that people would say, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but it, but he, it was like a big cover-up, like he, he maybe took some kind of medicine. In fact, the, the sponge or whatever that they gave him uh, toward the end was actually this medicine. The same thing at Juliet. Jo, Juliet? Ju, not Juliet, that's a town. Juliet. Is it Romeo or Juliet took the thing that made her like sleep? Juliet took it? Uh, so maybe it was something like that, where it slowed down the heart and made it appear as though he were dead. Um, so the, and then when they put him in the tomb, he woke up again. And despite his significant scourgings and uh, obvious near-death state, he was able to single-handedly push the giant stone away and sneak past the guards and then full sprint to Emmaus and then magically teleport back to the locked room. Just like these, these totally uh, insane ideas of how Jesus would be able to, to do that. And, and also, if I'm a Roman executioner, I've got really one job in this world. That is to make sure that people die. And if I fail at my job, what happens to me and my family? Remember we talked about the insanity of like the, the, Roman, the Roman leaders. Like you don't want to make your boss's boss mad because they don't just come and lay you off. They come and cut off your head and like they torture you so that the guy who follows you doesn't also mess up. And that would be consistent because that's how the, their deity is treating one another. Their gods are being evil and violent toward one another. So we'd expect the Roman people to be evil and violent toward one another. So if you're not going to do your job, fine, we'll just kill you in a painful way so that, so that all the other soldiers will know that, they're, that they need to do a better job next time. So these, the, it's not like these Roman soldiers were like, you know what we should do, guys? Let's pretend to kill Jesus. 
that'll be, that'll go over really well. What did they have to gain by making up that whole thing, right? Well, maybe they're getting paid off. By who? Who had the money? And then what, more importantly, what evidence at all do we have of such a conspiracy? There's no evidence at all. And the thing about conspiracies, um, you really have to be good at keeping a secret. Have you ever like, have you ever been able to keep like, for one person to keep one secret is maybe more possible, but the more people that are aware, like if I told all of you a secret, and I say, okay, don't tell anyone. And you all say, okay, pastor, you won't tell anyone. And then you go and tell somebody right away and you say, but don't tell anybody because pastor said to don't tell anybody, right? So to try to keep some kind of a secret cover up, secret, it's impossible. So this mass conspiracy of what, how these disciples are trying to pull Jesus, they, what we'll do is we'll make sure the Romans almost kill him and then we'll revive him in some, in some way that he's, that he's completely healthy again, just doesn't. That whole argument falls apart. So then you gotta deal with what they did with the body. Well, we'll get back to that when we get to his burial in two or three months. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the Roman soldiers, which it's in John's account more vividly, uh, it's not, I don't believe it's even in the, the Lucan account where they, when they get to Jesus to break the legs to get Jesus off the cross and he's not dead yet, they, they stab him in the side and from it comes blood and water which there's medical data showing that this is likely the case that water would have been surrounding the lungs at this point in asphyxiation. And so both water and blood come out from this side, which church history has kind of depicted quite vividly in, in beautiful pictures of Jesus being crucified and, and waters spraying out like into a font and waters into, or blood into a chalice and water into a font. Um, and obviously that, the Bible doesn't say that's what's going on there. That it's just, it's a, maybe it's symbolic application of that. So Jesus would have had to overcome a lot, the, the scourgings, the crucifixion by those who are really good at crucifixions, stabbed in the side with a spear, and then 24 hours later become superhuman, be able to push a tombstone out of the way and, and outsmart the guards and, and present himself totally fine to the apostles on, the Easter, on Easter evening. It's just not realistic. But those are the things that an atheist has to come up with. Because again, we have to deal with the problem that Jesus is alleged to have risen from the dead. You have all these guys who, who, who are saying that they saw it and they're willing to die for that claim. So how they either, they either think they saw it, maybe they're all having a hallucination, like all of them are having the same hallucination at the same time. And then they're willing to die for something as fuzzy as maybe a dream. That just doesn't happen. Who has mass hallucinations like that? So that all, these, all the excuses for Jesus maybe not dying fall away and we're left with the, the problem that Jesus actually died. And then three days later, people actually saw him alive and were willing to die for that, okay? But we'll come back to that. So that's, the, that's how a person dies on the, on the cross by crucifixion. Um, it's ultimately about the, the breathing. And so we're, we're, we're mindful of the words that they say. This brings up an interesting topic. We started talking about last week and I had a few different people after Bible study want me to talk about it more. I had a ton of follow-up questions and I've had some conversations with other folks. So I think it's worth talking about today. Um, as your handout says, um, 
So I overview the death by crucifixion. I did that. In about 50 years from this point in Luke, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Romans, and the city is going to be filled with hundreds of crosses every day. So the idea of crucifixion would have brought horror to the Jews. That was the idea. To see a crucifix is to remind you of, like, your husband or your wife or your children being screaming out in pain and suffering. So the association of that cross is not with a pleasant thing. It is with bad, bad things. Uh, the idea of crucifixion. And, and yet Jesus takes what was, what was the most horrific sign of torture and takes it to use now for us this incredible sign of peace and ultimately forgiveness and eternal life. So now we've got this, the, the concept of the crucifix in picture form. So we would call it a crucifix and our, and our use of it in worship and the, churches, the, the, the Christian church's use or non-use of that in history. So a couple points there. Uh, how can Christians use a crucifix in their personal decor or even in their worship? So some would say Jesus is no longer on the cross. So why are we keeping Jesus on the cross? We should be having empty crosses. You ever heard that argument? Jesus is no longer. Oh, if, I mean, to be consistent with that argument, you can also no longer have nativity scenes because Jesus is also no longer in the manger. So what's being, what's being confessed, at least in, in response to this argument, is what's being confessed with Jesus is not that he stayed on the cross and didn't rise from the dead, but it's the fact that the most important thing about Jesus is that he died. We, as, as Paul says, we preach nothing among you but Christ crucified. And so this emphasizes that point, the crucifixion of Jesus, not that he didn't rise from the dead, obviously he did, obviously that was essential as well, but we're just following after Paul from 1 Corinthians, I determined, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yes, he's no longer on the cross, just as he's no longer in the manger, but the manger is important too. Because it, so you know why we have manger scenes besides to help stimulate Hallmark's market share? Like, it, because it's important that Jesus was actually born like us. So he was incarnate. He was born just as we are. Obviously, the Bible also says that. So we're, 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 we're just being consistent with what the scripture says. But his, his becoming flesh in the same way that we were, we were born in this world is essential because he also redeemed them babies. He became like them to die for them because babies die. Just as he grew to be just like us. So he could redeem us and take our place. So that's, um, that's part of why crucifixes. And, I, and last week we talked about some examples of like, um, like in, in, I mentioned the bracelet company that, that tries to say crosses are about life and, and or new, new life and peace and hope or something, but it wasn't concretely tied to the person of Jesus. And so when you put a, when you put a body on the cross, it, it, re, it removes the possibility of subjective interpretation. It's not like, well, here's what crosses mean to me. Well, you gotta deal with, well, we're, no, we're not saying it's subjective. We're saying there's actually a guy in history, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. And we're making that specific claim. So crosses are fine, by the way. I just do wanna emphasize that because I also had somebody misinterpret my words last week. So uh, you wanna have crosses over your house? Fine. I'm not saying it's bad at all. You wanna have crucifixes all over your house? Fine. Totally, it's, it's all done with, an, with, with freedom. Uh, I'm just saying, when, when, you get, when someone comes and says, why do we have a crucifix in the church and not just a regular cross? Um, well, we're, we're free. Jesus didn't say one way to, to do this or even to not. In fact, Jesus didn't say anything about using crosses to depict anything. So think back to the first century Christians. 
what they start, as I mentioned earlier, so they, they, this image of a cross was a terrifying thing, and now it's a picture of their eternal life. So to have this picture of a cross is this ongoing reminder that my sins have been paid for and that I will never suffer the eternal wrath of God because Jesus suffered the eternal wrath of God for me in my place. So you, basic crosses. So uh, whenever, uh, whenever Jesus comes back and you're running a Dave Bowden stab, you're still going to have that cross in his hand that we put on his chest in the casket, right? Because <laughs> uh, he, he wanted to hold on to it when he was, when he was, uh, when he was dying. Because it reminded him of his hope, right? So, um, but it's, it's all done with freedom. It's all done with freedom to ultimately remind us of who our Lord is and how he, how he saved us. But then we got some other issues, and this came up big in the Reformation. Um, so, after, so after the, the Protestant Reformation occurs, you have, and fortunately, this is the best Sunday for Chris Johnson to be here because we can talk about Karlstadt, and, and Chris will say... The people's work. So if you watch the Luther's, if you watch the Luther movie, uh, I think it's especially in the in most recent Luther movie, there's a scene when Luther kind of comes back. He's already been pulled away, uh, like kind of kidnapped so he wasn't, he wasn't killed. And there's this reformation that starts to happen in, in uh, Wittenberg and all throughout Germany led by what, what, what they can't even be known as the enthusiasts. Not that they were just super enthusiastic, but this sense of that they, they would... They would say the Holy Spirit was giving them some sort of a special interpretation. Hey, you need, so the Bible says, the Bible says, for example, that this is my body and blood. But then the enthusiast would say, well, when Jesus said body and blood, what he meant was, and so Luther would push back and say, how do you know what Jesus meant? Is the Holy Spirit talking to you directly? Are you getting some kind of a special communication that's other than the word of God? And that, since they got that, that term enthusiast, well, the enthusiast were really big uh, against um, the, they, they took, so one of the big things what Luther had done is he said, you don't have to go through private confession and absolution to, to be forgiven or to re- receive the sacrament. He, he didn't do away with private confession and absolution. He just said, you don't have to do it. So if we say you have to do this, it's like Jesus saying, it is finished as long as you go to private confession and absolution. We don't add anything to the, to the cross. We don't make the gospel contingent. And so that was Luther's big thing. The gospel is being made contingent by, the, by requiring confession and absolution or requiring the specific enumeration of offenses. So when you go to the priest, you have to list off all your sins and receive your penance for that. And if you don't do it just right, if you don't cover everything, then you're gonna have to suffer for that eternally. Because Jesus didn't mean it when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> I'll come back to that one. Um, so uh, so they, were th- they had ripped out the, so they, since Luther had kind of turned down the intensity on confession absolution, uh, the enthusiast went on to say, well, we also shouldn't have the Lord's Supper. So they're ripping altars out of churches. We shouldn't, have ba- we shouldn't be baptizing babies. They're ripping the fonts out of churches. And then also shattering stained glass windows. So any kind of, and, and crucifixes. So there's a scene where you got like this little monk guy and he's, he's got a crucifix on. He's like a priest or something. And then Karlstadt runs up to him and, and pulls it off because it's a graven image. And there we have I think it's gonna, the conversation is going to kill the rest of our time this morning. Um, what does that mean? Because if you ever, well, I, I, I'll introduce it like this. When I was in ninth, t- 10th grade, I transferred to, to a university Christian 
high school. Yes, it's a high school with the name university in it. It's dumb. I didn't make it up. Um, I took Bible. You have to take religion in this, this non-denominational class, very similar to like where Henry and, and Kenny go. And um, I had to take, so, so when we had a quiz, which was like, would you memorize the Ten Commandments? Well, pfft, I can do that. I just got through confirmation. I can listen to Ten Commandments. So I didn't even study. So I show up. He, gives a, he would get out, get out the piece of paper, write the Ten Commandments, and I did, and I failed. I got a 10 out of 100 because if you get the second commandment wrong and you get them out of order, so have you ever noticed that you walked into any courthouse, like use most of American public places where they'll have the Ten Commandments shown there, have you noticed that you're looking at a different, a different listing and different numbers? Or, or if somebody will say, like, if I'm referring to adultery, I'll say the sixth commandment or, or, or murder, fifth commandment. But if you look at, like, that, that public display, Ten Commandments, you'll find a different one. In fact, you can Google on your phone right now, Ten Commandments images, and it'll pull up some kind of a scroll or something like a picture of Moses holding Ten Commandments, and you'll find on there a different ordering. Has anyone ever noticed that before? Okay. You just kind of did away with it? Well, we as Lutherans, we have a different Ten Commandment because Luther came later and said, you know what? While I say sola scriptura, on this one particular point, we're going we're gonna to go away from that. And no, it's not it at all. So uh, the, the bigger piece regarding the Ten Commandments is there's the, the, there's, the word is 10 words, deca, log, deca, 10, logos, words. So there's 10 words, but it's actually not just 10. There's lots of commandments that are listed. I think if you number them up, they're like 15 or something. Different, like, specific do not do this kind of things. The Jews order, order it, number one is, I am the Lord your God, which isn't even a, it's not even a commandment, because it doesn't need to be a commandment, it's just a word. So the first word is, I am the Lord your God. Second word would be to have no other gods for them. So you have different renderings of the ordering of the numbering of the commandments. And then as we see it in our, in our common practice, we follow the Augustinian tradition. So among Lutherans following this like uh, Roman Catholic or uh, Western tradition of the Ten Commandments as we know them. With the first commandment, you shall know their gods. Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And, and what the problem is, if you go back and look into Exodus 20, what you'll find is quite a bit of stuff that has jumped over, including not to make unto thee any graven images. In fact, I printed that on your hand out there. Verse three, uh, you, shall not have, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, punishing the children of the father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, shall I love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We, that's part of the, the, the catechism that we've, that we've you know, memorized. That that's actually the, Luther puts it as the close of the commandments we, as, we, as far as how we get the kids to memorize it. And then like three verses later, we get to, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God or take the Lord's name in vain. So where the numbering kind of change starts to happen, especially among the, the enthusiasts uh, post-Reformation is they're getting hung up on this, do not make, unto, do not make any graven images. So if, if the commandment is indeed... I mean, the fact is, it's, whether or not you put it on your public display is irrelevant to me. What does this mean? When, when Genesis 
Exodus 20, verse 3 and 4, what does it mean to have a carved image? And, and are we doing something wrong? Because if we're willing to say, well, you know, it's okay to, uh, that's Old Testament. Well, so is murder then? And adultery? And stealing? That's Old Testamenty. <laughs> no, right? Now that actually, that caveat does actually, that holds true with the Sabbath. When we talk about how, what it means for us to actually honor the Sabbath day today, because, and that's because Hebrews lays out for us what it means that, that Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath and now we enter into his Sabbath rest. But we're still on, honoring the Lord's day by keeping it holy. What makes anything holy God's word? We'll come back, I can talk about that in the, another day. But specifically here, what is, the, what is commonly held by some is that any kind of depiction of the deity is, is going against the first commandment. So I went into my cousin's church for his wedding back in like 2009 or something. Um, when you're at seminary, you, you think I'm critical now. When you're at seminary, it's like you have all your guns sharp and you're making fun of everything possible. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my cousin's church. I'm like, there's not a cross in this building. What a joke. You know, uh, very critical. Now, that was, that, it wasn't really fair. So they're trying to be faithful to how they're interpreting this. Obviously, we disagree with that. But is, is, it, is it wrong to have a cross in your church? Or a 40-foot gigantic Jesus saying touchdown like we, like we do, <laughs> right? Is that problematic? Well, what, I mean, have you thought about this? How do you kind of wrap your mind around this problem? Well, here's how Luther handled it. Because the question was brought specifically to, to Luther after the Reformation by Karl Stott and the rest of the enthusiasts. So like, how, this is a graven image. So maybe generally the idea is, it's not making images in general that are problem. Because God himself even tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, which is an image. And you and I would actually even say that it's supposed to be an image of Jesus on the cross, because Jesus himself says that's the case in Genesis 3, or John 3. Just as Moses raised the, the, the serpent in the wilderness, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up. So the, the serpent was supposed to be kind of a picture of the, oncom, the incoming Jesus. But still, it doesn't matter. It's, if it's just don't make any images at all, don't make any carved images at all, is that the commandment? Or, and this is the way Luther took it, it's not about making the carved images generally. It's what it's for. It's, look, look, it's in a sandwich. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in the heaven above or earth beneath or the water on the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So it's not about making carved images. And by the way, punctuation, capitalizations, periods, not in the Hebrew. So we kind of like, well, it's a different thought. It's a different, you say it's a different subject, different, ver no, no, it's a, same idea. Tied together is graved Im graven images, that is, images that are toward being worshipped. Not, don't make an, an image for the sake of making an image. So do, you can't have a picture of your, of your grandmother on the wall in your house. That would be that what this, that logically, if, if you're being consistent and you're saying you can't make any pictures of Jesus, you also can't make any pictures of grandma or anything. So, you, so you should, there should be people like downtown Naperville destroying statues, not because that's popular among the woke these days, but because it's any graven image, it's, a car, it's an image, a carved image of anything, you gotta tear it down. That's not the case. It's images that are toward being worshiped. See, you see, you see the difference. So don't make an idol. 
Now, we still have this, we, we have Jesus on the cross. We have, we have so we start, we, we have the crucifix. We got um, Jacob Wilson there in our bulletin uh, holding the crucifix there. Is that an idol? Can that be an idol? Right. And this where Luther actually gives some pastoral advice that I actually, one of my favorite things that he, that he does and I actually practice, I try to practice it in my own pastoral practice uh, in my ministry. So Luther said, if, some, if you've got a crucifix there and someone has, is, is thinking that that's God, that they're worshiping that, if they've made an idol of the crucifix, okay? That's the, that's the idea. There, there's a crucifix and they think that that's God. And you say, well, that's not good. They shouldn't be doing that. Which would be fair for you to say. So Sue Dumford, well-meaning, she sneaks in at night. She grabs the crucifix and she, she takes it back and hides it in the closet. <laughs> now is that, so she's removed the idol and, and actually done, she's, she's trying to give her neighbor, she's trying to help because they think God's a stick and God's not a stick. So we're gonna remove the idol from their presence. Well, have we really solved the real problem? Where is the problem? It's in the heart. So if I think God is a stick or is a carved image, I'm not gonna solve the problem by removing it from the eye. I have to preach it out of the heart. And if I preach it out of the heart, then the idol that was before the eye ceases to matter. So like now for you and me, like if, if, we had a, if, we, if our congregation was struggling with the issue of, of actually thinking that, that the crucifix was, was God, I mean, we had to figure out ways to handle it, right? More, more importantly, like contextually, you all know what it's about and, and I don't have to bring you along to that. But if, if, if we didn't have any crucifix at all in this setting and I just show up and I, I bought this and you guys are all like traumatized by it, that that's forcing it upon you and I should not be doing that, right? That's just, that's actually contrary to 1 Corinthians. We're supposed to love our neighbor and kind of slowly grow with them. Um, I could just say, well, no, it's not God. You need to get over it. But if you actually think that's God, that's problematic. I'm not going to force that on. I, need, I still need to teach that a right understanding of these things. But in our context today, no one thinks that that's God. Uh, it, we, we worship, we, that's a reminder of why we're here, which is why we, you know why we have acolytes? Because I don't know how, I don't know how, to, I don't know how to light candles. To, to make them come to church. And, and the, we, we try to like, we try to honor them and, and, and explain why we're doing what we're doing and have a little small talk in the, in the sacristy about the time of the church year and, oh, you know, just little theological things here and there and just building rapport with the kids. We think that's important. But you don't have to do these things, right? Um, but so we... we we have acolytes and we have them carry in the cross. It is a position of honor. We try to have them take it seriously. Uh, it reminds us like why we're here. So the idea is I could start off church by just walking down the aisle and you could all look at me or not look at me, but I'm not why you're here. Jesus is why we're here. That's not Jesus. I know that's not Jesus. You know that's not Jesus, but I'm trying to remind you and me that we're all here for him, not for me or you.
right? We're here for Jesus. So it kind of focuses our attention on what the service is, is, uh, is uh, focused on. We preach Christ crucified. And so we make Christ crucified the sinner, even, even uh, symbolically, even depicting it here. Uh, Luther went on to argue, if, if making an image is the problem, you have a, if I, if I even, even already on Good Friday, and you're hearing, the, you're hearing the crucifixion account read from like John, or like in your mind, even when I'm reading to you, two others were criminals who were led away to be put to death with him. And they came to the place that's called the skull. There they crucified him, one on his right and one on his left. You start to form in your mind what? A, a picture. So Luther says, so what are you going to do? Like carve the, or rip the picture out of my mind, out of my heart? Because I've, I've painted a picture of Jesus in my mind. Does that mean Jesus is in my mind and now I'm worshiping the Jesus in my mind? No. It's a picture of who it is that I'm worshiping. And, and God is the one who's, who's communicating us in this way, communicating toward us in this way. So I hear a word and I picture in my mind. It's just our natural way of human communication. So it's not, it's, it's not an idol. I'm not worshiping it. I can begin to worship the wrong thing, and that's why we have the first commandment to turn us away from false gods to the living and true God. But we do want to handle these things carefully because you also have, you have people who have come up in, in church bodies where they're, they're adamant, like my cousin, um, that, that any, kind of, any kind of depiction of, of the deity of Jesus is, is an idol. Well, I don't, I don't kind of help them understand that by saying, nah. but actually walking through, well, what's the scripture say? And what, why were the carved images problematic? It wasn't that they were carved, right? It's that they were worshiped. So it's the worshipness is the issue. And then now my last, why and how do we use a crucifixion or worship? Um, we get, so as I mentioned, we start worship with it, we walk in. Do you have to have one? No, and in fact, in many settings, it's, it's um, and in fact, one of the comments from, from last week in some churches were just like almost shocked to have a crucifix. Why? Why, why are many Lutherans shocked that you have a crucifix in your church? Because it's... <laughs> and so we just blame it on the Catholics. Well, the Catholics also believe in Jesus. So we can't believe in Jesus because it's... So the, the Lutherans, again, as I, I think I answered you sarcastically in the same way last time, uh, John, um, the, the Lutherans would say whatever we should do what the Bible says on this, and that is honor the saints who have come before us so we can remember them. We're, so we can remember, I can remember my grandmother. I already, we already, I talked about Dave Bodenstab right now. I've referenced a saint. Um, do I have a picture of Dave in my office? Do I pray today? No. Right? Uh, we don't have a word from our Lord that anyone in heaven can hear us or that they're interested in listening to us. 
It seems that they can see us in a couple of different places. It seems that they can be at least aware of what's going on. From Revelation, we have a couple of pictures there. But nowhere are we told to pray to, to God. Um, the only cases where you have people doing that, like in the Ave Maria and stuff, it's this idea that I'm praying to the, to the saints that they would intercede for me, uh, like on my behalf, to get me out of purgatory. Well, why, would I, why, would I gotta, why would I go to Mary when I can go straight to Jesus? It's like... It's like can you talk to Troy for me? Don't, don't listen, Troy. Can you? <laughs> like that's, that's the idea. If I can talk to Jesus, why would I? So it's not bad to, it's not bad to, to think about the saints. In fact, we remember that on festival days, we remember on saint days where you've got a saint who's been martyred. We remember the confession of St. Stephen, St. Peter and Paul, and we were mindful of the saints who have gone before us. But what makes them saints is not that they were so good, but it's that they had faith in Jesus. And we can also give thanks for the gift that they were to the church. So, but if there's, a, if there's somebody with a, with a wrong understanding of that, and they're actually thinking, we do have to pray to the saints, and then my house becomes somehow more lucky if I bury St. Joseph in my yard upside down or something like that, or however that thing goes. Oh, there's not really a word from our Lord on that. Right? And I don't think Joseph himself or whichever saint it was would be a big fan of that idea. Um, so we just want to be careful of that, of that kind of false teaching. But we, to, have, to have crucifixes in church are not, not neither, it's adiaphor, neither commanded nor forbidden by our Lord Jesus. We have it in our logo that Christ crucified would be the center of all that we do in our church and school there on the, on the bottom of your handout. So it's not, it's, if someone says, hey, why are we putting a picture of God that we should be worshiping on our logo? Okay, that's an issue we need to talk about. Um, but we don't have to have crucifixes in worship. The, the center points to worship are what? Wherever the word is preached and the sacraments are administered. So that's what makes worship. So the crosses are here reminding us why we're here and where the victory was won, but we're free. We're free. Um, it's a lot, it, it removes doubt. So like um, you wear a crucifix necklace, it becomes a conversation piece, maybe. Um, <laughs> do the crucifixes have power in themselves? How about the water in the baptismal font? What, what, gives, it, what gives the water in the baptismal font? The word. What makes the crucifix helpful? Like does the crucifix like somehow repel like off with mosquitoes? Well, we just, again, we don't, have, we, don't have a word, we don't have a word from our Lord on that that would do such things. Like even to even, to even have a, a depiction in some handheld way of a crucifix, it it's foreign to the, to the biblical narrative. Um, is it true that the devil hates Jesus on the cross? That's true. Is it true that me being mindful of Jesus on the cross is helpful in me pushing back against the demons? Yeah. So I mean, that, but it's not like there's some kind of incarnate magical power in this object unless God said there will be incarnate magical power in this object, which he didn't. So now like I can think that, um, but if I, if I think that my, my car is a little bit safer because I got a crucifix dangling from my rearview mirror, I'm not wrong because the last thing I wanna see when I get T-boned by an 18 wheeler is that crucifix to be reminding, reminding me of what matters most. Does that make the car somehow immune from disaster? No, 
But it did get me, it reminded me of my sure and certain hope even in the midst of death. So you see, that's kind of the idea. It doesn't have a magical power, but it does remind me of the thing that does have all the power. And that's why we, that's why we use it. That's why we, and, and it's again, done in freedom. You don't have to like it. You don't have to have it. You don't, whatever. Um, so, and some can be problematic too. Like we, we, when, we, when we start worship at church, we, we process in with a cross in the back and some, depending on your church background and, and tolerance, some people will even like, will, will, will reverence the cross and make the sign of the cross even. Well, it's not, again, that's not, it's not saying that you think that's Jesus. If you think that that means you're saying, or if you think that by doing that, you're worshiping that as an idol, then don't do that thing. The idea is the same way that we have the acolytes when they come out. If you ask the acolytes, like, is this complicated? They'd be like, yes, I'm supposed to kneel sometimes. Other times I bow. I don't know the order. So we have them, they come, they walk out and they bow. They light the candles and then they kneel after the candles are lit. Why? Because the lit candles are symbolic of the presence of God. So when you're in the presence of the king, you kneel. But God never said anything about candles representing the presence of God. We totally made that entire thing up. It's purely symbolic, but it is as a point. We are in church. There's something that's distinguishing this time period. When we light the candles, we're saying, okay, we're, we're now worshiping God. It's activated, you might say. Um, but it's not like the candles somehow make God more present now than he was before. But again, we're reminding ourselves that we are in the presence of God. And so we, we kneel. Are the candles God? No. Is the altar God? No. Does God care if you kneel in the chancel? No. But we're reminding ourselves, even by our posture, that we are in the presence of God. That's also why we kneel for the Lord's Supper. Um, any comments or questions on any of that? I covered a lot. Hopefully it's helpful. Yeah, Harvey. Quickie on the crucifixion itself. So, about oh, 30, 50 years ago, I don't remember how long, they discovered a uh, part of a body they had been crucified, but the nail wouldn't come out, so they had to chop Oh, so Harvey's talking about some artifacts of crucifixions where they had the nail through the bone. So if you want to, we got to cut, we got to end for church here. So if you want to hear more about bones and nails and creepy things like that, please see Harvey. Very good. Uh, we'll pick up with the more of the Jesus's last words next Sunday. Uh, the Lord be with you.